0: If this is your first time at Encounter, or maybe you've been gone for a few weeks and you're, you're kind of coming back, we are in the middle of our ongoing summer series called Sunday School Revisited. And the idea of the, the series that we're in is that if you grew up in a church setting, possibly, and you went to Sunday school, or maybe you didn't come from a church setting, but there are just these well-known stories of the Bible that seem to circulate, uh, we kind of hear these stories, and a lot of times they're kind of left in the Sunday school sort of mentality that we know them, but just kind of in that way. And so what we want to do is take some of these well-known stories and possibly not so well-known stories and see what sort of truth and grace is still in them that is applicable to us as growing and maturing adults, at least hopefully more mature than we were as like a third or a fourth grader. So, for instance, a few weeks ago, Dirk uh, preaches a message, and it's about uh, Moses' account of leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. Uh, God has delivered them out of Egypt, and now they're making their way to this land that God has promised them, but instead of going the direct route, they're, they're taking the long way around. And it's in the middle of this desert wilderness, this, this alternate route, that the people begin to complain. It is dusty and dirty. There is a scorching sun. There is little water, much like Michigan. It seems like these are connecting to Michigan right now. And there's no food. The people grumble and grumble, and finally God sends them something, a a bread-like substance called manna. And the people, they're not even really sure what it is, and and it is not much, and so they call it manna, literally translated, what is it? But the thing was, the manna... It was enough for what they needed at that time for where they were. It made them dependent on God to see how he would provide for them, even if it was just enough. And sometimes that applies to our lives as well. We we go through these seasons of life and it seems that we're on an alternate route instead of the one that we thought we should be on. And so we ask the question, what is it? But maybe in that moment, It's enough. It's not what we hoped for. It's not what we expected, but it's enough. It's enough so that, like Paul, we could say, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, whether in plenty or in want. Uh, Sunday School Revisited, that's kind of the idea. This morning, I'm going to start a a two-part message on a man named Gideon, who we encounter in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a not-so-well-known book of the Bible for a variety of reasons. And I think one of the easiest ways to say it is that there are some large cultural differences between the way that the Israelites act and go about things in their world then versus how we might do things in our world now. Uh, But before we get into some more larger questions about the book of Judges, I'm just going to take a minute to set up what's the overarching theme? What's the narrative? What is happening in this book so that we can understand how this man, Gideon, comes into the picture. So we know that uh, God has delivered the Israelites out of Egypt through these signs and miraculous wonders, and he led them through the desert to this promised land, a land that promises to be filled with blessings and uh, with some sort of like a, a peace, a restful peace for his people when they listened to the laws that he gave them, which were the Ten Commandments, and also just worshipped him alone as their true God. But just as uh, some of you might tell your kid, don't eat a cookie right before dinner, only moments later to find the kid tucked away in the closet like mowing down chocolate chips, doing exactly the opposite of what you want, so the Israelites time and time again did exactly the opposite of what God asked of them. Uh, Let's call this the way of non-compliance. You can use that on your kids. You are acting in (laughs) non-compliance. And in the middle of their noncompliance, God would allow their enemies to come in and to oppress them in some way, shape, or form. And then if we turn to that, that child in the cookie analogy, just as your kid might cry out when they're disciplined for the consequences of their actions, uh, so the Israelites would cry out in the midst of their oppression for God to save them. And because God is gracious and compassionate and full of mercy, he raised up people who would come in and be his instrument in saving the people. And we call them these people Judges, um, a woman and a number of men who were raised up by God to restore peace and justice in Israel. But more importantly, they're raised up to restore a proper relationship between Israel and God. And this is like the ongoing cycle of the book of Judges. Rest and blessings, the way of noncompliance, oppression. They cry out to God, a judge comes, everything goes right again. And on and on it goes. Circular just keeps happening. And it's in the midst of of one of these cycles where we encounter this man named Gideon and this is the beginning of his story which comes to us in Judges chapter 6. I'm going to read it from the Bible and you can follow along on the screen behind me. This is the beginning of Gideon's story from Judges 6. It was like this, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys." They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. We take a quick break in the passage and we pick it up again at verse 33. It says this, Now the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all of the other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon said to God, If you save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you have saved Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the other ground was covered with dew. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. A recent cover of a a Time Magazine article featured the headline, The History of the American Dream. Is it still real? James Truslow Adams coined the term the American dream in his 1931 book, The Epic of America. And in that book, he defined the American dream as that land, that, that land in which a life should be better, and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each person according to ability or achievement. The American dream. Uh, Time journalist John Meacham set out to find, is the American dream still out there for the taking? Or is the present reality that we find ourselves in changing that? Is it not true? Uh, John Meacham begins his article a little bit less than enthusiastically. Uh, let me just read a part of it. He says The uh, enduring conviction that those who work hard and play by the rules will be rewarded with a more comfortable present and stronger, for their, stronger future for their children faces assault from just about every direction. The great enemy of democratic capitalism, economic inequality, it's real and it's growing. The unemployment rate is dispiritingly high. The nation's long-term fiscal health is at risk. And the American political system, the engine of what Thomas Jefferson called the world's best hope, shows no signs of reaching a solution that is proportionate to the problems of today. The way that John Meacham starts that article shows us that the American dream is in the midst of uncertain times. We could say the same thing for the state of the nation of Israel in Gideon's time. Uh, What many might have thought of as uh, the Israelite dream was something that was in the midst of uncertain times as well. Uh, The Israelite dream kind of went something like this. Uh, There's a a past generation or two of people who would hand down this story of how, how God had saved them from the oppressive hand of the Egyptians and had brought them into this promised land, a land that was to be filled with rest and blessings for everyone. But the present reality that Gideon and the nation of Israel found themselves in didn't match up with that. In fact, when we encounter Gideon, we find him uh, threshing wheat in a wine press, uh, a sign that the state of Israel was pretty bad and there wasn't hope for things to get better anytime soon. Uh, threshing, wheat in a, or threshing wheat in general was uh, something that was done in a, a large, outdoor, open, well-ventilated area. Uh, in order to separate the, uh, the head of the wheat from the, the stock of the wheat, the wheat needed to be beaten. Which, speaking from harvesting experience, I am from Iowa, I was born and raised on a farm, I'm proud of this. Knowing these things, it is a dirty and it's a dusty process, which is why it's done outdoors in a well-ventilated area. To further separate the, the head of the grain from the actual kernel itself, uh, they needed to, to uh, like throw the wheat up in the air so that the wind would blow the chaff out of the way, leaving just the kernel of grain. Once again, a very dirty and dusty process, which is why anyone in their right minds would do this in a large, well-ventilated, windy, breezy outdoor area. However, we find Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. A wine press is a a hole, a pit that's dug in the ground, or it's some sort of a a cave-like area. Uh, We might envision it as we might like a stereotypical wine cellar. Uh, It's dark, it's dusty, musty, dirty. It's perfect for fermenting grapes. It's horrible for threshing wheat. But this is where we find Gideon threshing his wheat because Gideon knows that had he done this in the open, he was surely inviting an ambush from the Midianite people who had like made it their life's goal to destroy anything the Israelites tried to do. In light of the uncertain times, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. And then the text talks about how an angel of the Lord comes to visit him, and the, the, the angel says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Oh, if you could only have a picture of Gideon's face when this happens. I, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Really? If the Lord is with us, as you say, Why has all of this happened to us, is what Gideon says. You know, I grew up, I grew up week after week, I hear these people talk about some God who did miraculous signs and wonders and brought us into this land that's supposed to be filled with rest and blessings, and I see none of it. Where is God? Why am I threshing wheat in a wine press? Why is this happening? And it's that question right there. Why Is this happening? I think it's a question that might be on some of your lips. Maybe it has been on your lips at some point. And I can say with a decent amount of certainty that the question of why is this happening will be a question on your lips at some point in your life. You go to school for a bunch of years and spend tens of thousands of dollars on tuition that's supposed to get you a good paying job, but six months, two years... Five years down the road, there's nothing in your field of expertise. You work an insane amount of hours every week, but no matter how many hours you work, you barely have enough to get by. And so you pray and you pray and you pray that God will give you something so you no longer have to eke your way through life, but nothing changes. This month is the same as last month. Next month looks to be the same as this month. And so you ask God, why is this happening? Where are you? Have you even listened to me? Take things and put them on on a larger scale. Uh, There's earthquakes that rocked Haiti. There's tsunamis that went through Japan. There's fires that are burning through the state of Colorado, uh, taking thousands of lives, destroying immense amounts of property. And the question comes up, where is God Why is this happening? But even take that question into your day-to-day life. you got a squawking kid on each arm. You face unexpected car or home repairs. Uh, Somebody in your family gets hurt or injured, or worse yet, somebody passes unexpectedly. Uh, Relationships are breaking all around you. Your marriage is strained. The list of what could happen goes on and on. You heard a different generation of people talk about a God who provides. A God who is always there for his people. You've maybe listened to sermons from a pastor who says to trust in God because his provisions are always there. But your present reality fails to justify what the former generation might say. And so deep in your heart, you continue to ask the question, Why is this happening? It's worth noting that when Gideon asks God the question, why is this happening, God does not respond to him. It's as though God knows that Gideon has a question, but there's more to it. Gideon wants something more. That Gideon is not looking for a theoretical, well-articulated, or well-reasoned response to his question. Gideon wants to see something happen. And for any of us who ask the why question, I think that's the same thing. We want to see something happen. Well, the good news for Gideon is that God is going to move in a very powerful way. Come back next week if you want to hear the the ending of the story. God is going to move in a very powerful way. The bad news, at least in Gideon's mind, is that God has selected him to be the instrument and being a, a resolve to the question as to why. As, as God calls Gideon into the service, Gideon begins to make excuses to cover up the doubts that he has. Gideon so far has shown no more leadership. He has no more skills than anyone else that would make him a capable leader for what is to come. And, and Gideon says this to God. You know, I um, just want to let you know that... My family, we are like on the low end of the totem pole. People people don't really know us. We're not strong. In fact, we're a non military family. We are farmers and we're not even good farmers. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. <laughs> and here's the other thing my brothers beat on me constantly. I am the weakest person in our family. Surely there is someone else to do the job. And in the face of all the excuses, God is consistent with the way that he speaks to Gideon. God says that he is called into service and God promises to go with him in the service that he is being called into. There, There's a few things to, to learn about the God who calls Gideon into the service, this This true God of Israel as opposed to the gods that the Israelites had chased after. Uh, Maybe a few things that we too could learn about a God who we worship in this place as opposed to uh, maybe fear or anxiety or whatever else we might gravitate towards when we feel we're being pulled into a season of life that we're not sure we can handle. When God calls Gideon into service, he doesn't call Gideon because Gideon has outstanding characteristics. He doesn't call Gideon because Gideon has a track record of major accomplishments. God calls Gideon because God knows Gideon better than he knows himself. God knows Gideon so well that he is preparing Gideon for the service that is to come. When God says to Gideon, go forward in the strength that you have, God knows he has the strength because God was the one who provided the strength to move forward. And instead of God telling Gideon that the reason the Israelites are in the place that they are at is because that they failed to worship him, they failed to live up to what he had asked of them, God gives an attentive ear to Gideon's why question. But God's already a step ahead. God has called and God is already preparing Gideon for the service that is to come. And and there's a few things there that, that are worth noting for us too when you face those those major why questions do you really want someone to stand and give you a really good theoretical well-articulated or well-reasoned answer to the question would that would that really satisfy the question in your heart if i could answer with perfection the question that you had in words would that really help Have you considered that maybe in the midst of the question of why that God has given a very sensitive and listening ear to it, but he's already a step ahead of where you're at? Have you considered that maybe part of the why question is God's preparation for you to be an instrument in being part of the solution? Have you considered those things? In the story, it seems as though God is more interested in preserving the nation of Israel than Gideon is. Um, God is ready to move into action, like, let's do this. Gideon, on the other hand, wants signs. Uh, And the first sign they ask for comes in verse 17, where he wants to know if it's truly the God of Israel that he has encountered. And then in the section that we we skipped over today, um, Gideon brings forward an offering and God performs a miracle over it. A sign that God would be with him. That God, the God he had encountered, was the God of Israel. And as we pick up the story again in verse 33, it talks about how uh, all of the enemy forces have gathered. Uh, a battle that is to come. Uh, the service that God has called Gideon into is going to happen. Come back next week if you want to hear about it. In verse 34, it says... The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's like the marker phrase in the book of Judges that something's going to happen, that God is going to move through one person. The rubber's meeting the road. It's time for something to happen. But in light of this upcoming battle that's to come, Gideon asks for more signs. Now, we could spend some time. We could, we could have a back-and-forth conversation. We could debate. We could wonder, is it right, is it proper for people to ask God for a sign? We could do that. We could stand here and talk about that. Uh, we could maybe shake our finger at Gideon and say, oh, you of little faith. Gideon, how could you not have faith? Uh, you already had a sign from God. What more do you need? We could shake our finger at him. We could maybe, we could maybe wonder about maybe what was running through Gideon's head on that first sign with the wool. That maybe he thought, you know, a piece of wool, it's thick enough, it's heavy enough, that it could retain a good amount of moisture throughout the day, even though the ground around it could already be dry. Might have been a possibility. But I think that just as God gave the attentive ear to Gideon's why question, but got at what was really behind the question... I think that there's more to what Gideon is asking for than just merely, God, I want a sign to know you're here. I think what this really gets at, the do in the wool really gets at who does Gideon have enough trust in to bring his doubts to? Who does Gideon have enough faith in to entrust with his doubts? Many times in the church when doubt comes up, we more often hear about faith that overcomes unbelievable uncertainty. And, and we tell stories about how people have done incredible things and they attribute it to stepping out in faith. And I want to be clear that those stories are important. They are vital for anyone in a, in a worshiping community to see that God is moving and is active in the world. But too often, doubt gets pushed under the rug that... Uh, Faith is the angel who sits on one shoulder telling you to believe, step out, trust. And then uh, doubt's the, the devil on the other shoulder who wants to pull the rug out from underneath and watch it all come tumbling down. And so doubt becomes the secret sin. I have all this doubt, but I think I just need to bury it. I need to repress it. I need to just get over it. And maybe it has even come down to the point where you've been led to believe that if doubts come up, you're not really a good believing person. But I think with the story of Gideon, this story right here, I think what it really shows us is that God hears and accepts and patiently deals with our doubts when they're brought to him. When Gideon asks for a sign it certainly shows that he has huge doubts about what's coming next. But when Gideon asks for the signs, he does so seeking, expecting, and anticipating that God was going to move in some way. Gideon did not ask God in theory, God, could you possibly, is it possible for you to make the wool wet and the ground dry, and then vice versa the next night. Gideon was sincere in his request. Gideon was not indifferent. In the New Testament, uh, there's a book of Hebrews, and there's this famous passage in it, which is called, uh, like, the Heroes of Faith, or the Heroes of Faith Hall of Fame. And would you know that Gideon is listed in the annals of the Heroes of Faith? The great doubter himself gets listed with people of extraordinary faith. In this story, it takes Gideon, an encounter with an angel of God, a miracle from God himself, and two fleecings just to convince him that God would be with him in the upcoming battle. And the writer of the book of Hebrews lists him as an extraordinary person of faith. He gets listed in the Hall of Fame Faith heroes. I think what Gideon shows us here is that your faith will waver when you face big questions in times of uncertainty. What's truly important is whether or not you take those doubts to a God who is worshipped in this place, a God who is in control of the world, a God who is in control of the situation, or whether you take them to something or someone else else? Do you believe that there is a God who who knows you better than you know yourself? A God who loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to offer you a new life? Or when doubts come up, do you let fear, anxiety, and insecurity, do you give that primary access to doubt? Or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, do you give a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality the first place when it comes to moments of doubt? Who do you have enough faith in to entrust with your doubt? It's okay that, that Gideon questions God's commitment to be with him in the battle that is to come, because Gideon brings his doubts to a God that he believes is true. Gideon believes the relationship between God and him is real. And so Gideon brings his doubt there. Brings it to, to a God who he believes will move and will act and who will do great things. When Gideon finds himself threshing wheat in a wine press, the doubts surface, but he brings them to a God who he believes Will make a difference and God patiently deals with Gideon do you believe that that same God will also patiently deal with you when you have moments of doubt and uncertainty as you walk out today there is a basket over there and it has little cotton balls in it I'll kind of use them as a, a little bit of a reminder for the story today Um, I encourage you to to take one of those cotton balls with you and use it as a reminder that the great doubter of the book of Judges is listed in the Heroes of Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, Take a piece of cotton as a reminder that, like Gideon, you can bring your doubts to a God who hears and accepts and patiently listens to your doubts. Uh, Take that piece of cotton home with you as a reminder that there is a God who loves you and knows you so well that he promises to be with you, that he already sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he now sends his Holy Spirit to walk along beside you in the times of uncertainty. Take that piece of cotton as a reminder that God's promises are consistent and he loves you. I invite you to stand, so I can pray for you and uh, the week that is coming up. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we uh, have read your word; we've listened to it, and God, we ask that you give us a, a faith that entrusts you with the doubts that we face in life. That when we face large uncertainties about the, the week that is to come, the years that are to come, whatever we face, God, help us to bring our doubts to you and not let fear, anxiety, or, or whatever else it might be, the primary spot. God, give us a faith. Give us uh, enough trust in you to know that you are with us and that you deal patiently with us when we question you. And God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.